Askey Anything, a podcast presented by Mosher Consulting. Join us every Wednesday to find out who from Mosher's more than 200 resident experts we'll be talking to and what they're focused on at the moment. Trends, security, setup. Ask anything, and we'll give you our best answers. Go! Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ask Anything presented by Mosher Consulting. Today, we have a very special episode for you where we are talking about IT help desk. What does that look like today? A lot of people still believe that an IT help desk is some guy in a dark room on a computer, just typing away, solving all of our problems. But that's not really what it is. It's a lot more involved than that. So we have two of our resident experts here at Mosher Consulting to talk about that. Our guest for today will be Mosher Managed Services Managing Director, Jim Timberman, and Principal Consultant and Team Manager, Chad Weed. Jim has been at Mosher Consulting for six years and is a results-oriented business consultant with an outstanding track record of delivering cost-effective technology solutions. Jim has led the Mosher Managed Services practice in becoming a trusted resource for IT help desk and managed services solutions for dozens of companies from small to large and in many industry verticals. Chad has been with Mosher Consulting for the last 10 years. He's currently a principal consultant with a background in infrastructure services, enterprise monitoring, and team leadership. He was recently promoted to the position of service desk manager for Mosher and is responsible for managing our ticketing system and processes and ensuring that Mosher Managed Services meets and exceeds customer expectations on a daily basis. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have you here with me today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, glad to be here. So we're gonna jump right in into these questions because I think it's very important that we discuss how people look at IT help desks. So when we imagine what an IT help desk is, most people think about a guy sitting at a desk waiting for the phone to ring, but I don't think that's a reality, is it guys? Yes and no on that. You know, a lot of your larger managed service providers do have a staff kind of sitting in call centers waiting for that phone to ring, and their model is based on that. So it's it's call us, we'll take care of the issue. But the downside of that is, or I should say the upside first on that is, is that there's readily available. The downside is, is that your issue or your request isn't resolved quickly. Their model really is to take the call capture the information, and then escalate that to someone who can resolve your problem, pending a minor issue of a password change or so forth. So a lot of those are scripted out for them. Our model within Mosher is, is a lot different. You know, we're really kind of based on customer service and, you know, the, establishing our relationships. And I'll kind of let Chad talk a little bit more about our approach. Yeah, like Jim said, our approach basically is while we have the customer online or on the phone, we try to understand the requests and or the issue, capture as many details as we can and work to resolve it while the customer is online or near line with the agent handling that call. And 95% of the time, we're able to resolve that issue and complete the request while we're talking to the customer. We have numerous ways our customers can get a hold of us. We have, obviously, the, the help desk line. We have an online portal where customers can submit their tickets in writing and sort of collect their thoughts better and even put screenshots we have email submission, of course, and a newer tool we have for PC is uh, called Connect to Mosher, which sits in people's system tray icon where they can basically right click on that and be attached live time to one of our technicians. And we find that that interaction, that right away interaction helps not only sort of uh, de-escalate the customer because 
typically when somebody calls a help desk or a service desk, they're not in a very good mood because something's gone wrong. So that helps de-escalate that. It helps them know that our people are actively working and they're, they haven't just called an answering service, as it will, that the, the actual person they're talking to is working on their issue right now. I was just going to say that um, I think it's very interesting uh, to see the amount of solutions that we have available to us right now. I mean, I remember when I joined the workforce 20 some odd years ago, like Jim was saying, you know, back then you probably could just get on a phone call with somebody and try to, you know, have that person basically just fix your issue over the phone, if at all. And like Jim was saying, you know, sometimes the person would call angrily because something wasn't working and then they wouldn't get their issue resolved right away. So I, I, I'm very, very curious to know about all these different methods that we have nowadays to have those solutions readily available. Yeah, well, let me reiterate the, the goal for our managed services team is to resolve the issue as expediently as possible. Our goal is essentially to, to resolve the issue while we're in contact with our client, not to, hey, we'll get back to you. Right. Escalated to somebody who can. You know, 95% of our interactions with our customers are, are resolved at first point of contact. Usually if we're escalating it, it's something that's a major issue that are possibly outside of our realm of experience. You know, maybe it's a ISP issue that, you know, there's a connection with the internet provider that we can't, you know, we, we just don't have access to, or it's some, you know, an application issue that we need to get in touch with the vendor. Because of the way our staff is built and, and the way the managed services teams are built, we have the skill set to usually take care of that right away. And, and the, the team camaraderie that we have, a lot of these guys are sitting right next to each other that they're able to just pop up and say, hey, can you help me? Boom, that individual comes over and helps. I was gonna say for expediency's sake too, our goal is to solve that issue right there online. We don't want to send a technician out to a company site or a user site if we can help it. We wanna help them right then and there without delays, without having to schedule further downtime for a user or a company. So yeah, like Jim said, 95% of the time we can do that through our online tools from everything from uh, server side manipulation of accounts and issues to actually going in to the user's uh, desktop with some remote tools and solving the issue right there, right then, with the user actually guiding us and showing us what the problem is. I was going to follow up what Chad was just saying with a good segue into what we're living in right now with the pandemic. Chad, you were mentioning that the focus is to fix everything right away, right, and not necessarily have to send somebody into a company. But how has the pandemic changed how companies need to interact with their users, especially for things like onboarding problems, things that happen through that initial setup? Because with the pandemic, obviously, if we can work it out remotely, then I guess that's probably better, right? Right. Well, Mosier, we've always sort of been geared toward that model. So when this whole thing broke out in the beginning of 2020, we were sort of already on board with doing remote work and assisting customers remotely. Now, the shift has been on the customer side where now they have remote workforces and so we've been we've had an opportunity to to educate a lot of different clients as to what working from home looks like what their support's going to look like and so i think really we and our clients have been highly successful in adapting that because frankly we were prepared and we were doing this before we had all all the stay at home orders and all the pandemic madness that we've had. So we were very well equipped to handle this. And to kind of expand on that too, in that when, you know, we kind of saw the signs happening, 
we actually took a very proactive approach with our clients to kind of talk to them about, hey, you know, how are you going to virtualize your workforce? A number of our clients or in a high percentage of our clients are their bricks and mortar type companies. A lot of the folks that work there, that's where all their work gets done. They're not used to or have never actually connected remotely. So, you know, not only implementing the tools to get them to be virtual, we had to look at how are we going to train your users and how are we going to be available to them? So we took a very proactive approach and said, hey, you know, we're going to kind of step back for a second and focus on nothing but being readily available to our clients. And, and that means, you know, expanding kind of our service desk offering, saying, hey, we're going to offer this number to everyone. We're going to be you know, readily available, be, be able to answer the phones and talk through that. You know, we've also provided educational tools to them on how to connect VPN, videos, et cetera, so that, you know, that they're prepared so that when this does happen, it's a smooth transition. I did not say they were hiccups, but a lot of it went a lot smoother than we anticipated. So, During this time, it's especially important to remember that the safety of our team and the safety of our clients is the utmost priority. Uh, so early on, we adopted some protocols for our team. So when they do indeed have to go onto a client site, we have things like self-assessments, personal uh, protective gear, and, and those kind of things. So again, we're trying to minimize any possible exposure to anyone who's been exposed to COVID. And like I said, our self-assessment tool every morning, whether our uh, team is coming in to a Mosher office or a client site, each uh, individual has to self-assess. And that assessment is sent to their management and to our HR department for review and recommendation on whether indeed they should go on site. So safety is very, very important to us. Speaking of electronic help desks, companies that didn't have these right now set up, how have you heard or have you seen the way people have scrambled to kind of catch up to this new normal of being able to do something from that, you know, space away from the office? To answer that, yes. You know, there's, there's the managed services providers out there, you know, there's the kind of the, what we would call the giant larger companies that have the call centers throughout the U.S. or even locally. We really kind of have the infrastructure in place to support that. But, you know, a number of smaller mid-tier managed service providers that really focus a lot on field work where they're providing field services, where they're deploying individuals on site to go fix things, really did scramble a lot and, and really struggled through this because they didn't have the infrastructure or tools to support these clients. We talk about this a lot because, you know, you, you know, the this during the whole COVID, you know, we had a lot of new clients onboarded just due to the fact that they felt that their current providers couldn't support them in this environment. And we were able to actually thrive from that. And our concern internally was, yeah, we have the tools, but do we have the capacity and, and in order to meet this? Even though you are taking the personal side out of it, you still have to have the resources available to support all the inquiries and requests coming in. Because again, as we mentioned before, you know, you're taking a staff of people that have never worked from home. You know, when they when they go home, they shut down. Now you're asking them to do that and you're asking them to also balance their life. You know, a lot of these are, you know, families with young children that they're kids are home they're having to balance between when they do their work versus when they're helping their you know children in virtual school so our availability had to expand out too so you know having the ability to not just be you know nine to five support we had to go above and beyond 24 7 to be available to our clients you know needs so the typical call that comes in at 
you know, one o'clock in the afternoon now comes in at seven o'clock at night, you know, or nine o'clock at night when that individual has time to sit down and, and start working. So, you know, in, in a lot of that too, is it relates to not just worker side of things, it also has to look at the, the network and infrastructure side. Is the, is the network performing? So a lot of things had to be changed as far as making systems and networks available and changing the time when uh, reports are being run so performance was optimal so a lot of that planning and so forth were there and a lot of companies just didn't have the capacity to do that so yeah and i think one of the keys to Mosure managed services too is we've always been customer service oriented so sort of referring to your your previous question about what people perceive of a service desk or a help desk our our team has never been just people sitting and logging calls We've always been focused on connecting with the customer. And I think during COVID, that brings a certain amount of uh, comfort and relief to people who are, you know, basically trapped at home. When they when they call our team, they're talking to a live person who's going to solve their problem right then and there. We're, you know, uh, we're focused on, like Jim has said, we are focused on solving their problem right then and there. And our escalation model, while we have it in place, we, we hardly ever have to, to utilize it because uh, we're getting things solved right there and then. And the, the end user is talking to the person who's going to be uh, servicing their ticket. That's And that's very important. I, I, I kind of like the way you phrase it, chat about people under the circumstances that we're living in, just having that someone to talk to. Because I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, it's customer service driven. We're always looking out for the customer as an organization. So I, I, I really like the way you put it there. I was, I was telling uh, one, of, one of the people we just onboarded, I said, uh, you know, really gone are the days of sort of the 80s, 90s, where people pictured an IT professional sitting in his mom's basement in, in a dark room, tapping on a keyboard with Mountain Dew. The job is customer relationships and customer service, and that's where IT in general has has shifted focus from, you know, the nerd in the dark to somebody who you can relate to and communicate to. And I want to elaborate a little bit on that too, in that, you know, some of the, a lot of the feedback we got from our clients was, you know, the amount of compassion and understanding our guys and our team put out there. So it didn't matter how simple the question was or, you know, how difficult the, you know, the, the, the situation was, because it can be a little bit uh, frustrating when you're trying to communicate your issue yeah. over the phone or trying to, you know, trying to recreate what happened. And there's that level of frustration that a lot of people have with IT that, you know, we were able to address and, you know, hey, slow down. I got all the time in the world to take care of this for you. It's, you know, not trying to get you on and off the phone. You know, we're working through you with that. And a lot of, of our model and our approach isn't just, you know, you know, it's, it's customer service facing at the uh, at the user level. It's also that communication and planning at the at the at the management level too. So we're constantly providing feedback to our clients. Here's the incidents. Here's the the requests we're getting. Here's the type of things we're seeing. And we're always looking to try to improve that for them to say, hey. This is, you know, we're seeing a number of these types of tickets coming in. Hey, we need to put something in place to correct this, whether that would be implementing a new technology or making specific changes to that environment or educating the user. So in making those things available so that they're like, oh, yeah, I remember now. Okay, now that I've seen how to do that, I can do it myself. So, so it was a lot of, a lot of that communication and planning uh, was ongoing throughout this whole, you know, pandemic and still continues to go on. So. 
So going off of what you were saying, Jim, I think it's interesting uh, you talk about the frustration of the clients because you're right. I mean, I consider myself to be technologically savvy kind of guy, not necessarily the most knowledgeable, but it does feel frustrating when you don't know all the IT jargon that you know somebody else might know when you're trying to explain something that's going on and you can't really just kind of say it outright. So it's interesting that you, you mentioned that our guys, the, the passion that they have for the business and the passion that they have for following through for our clients, I think that's that just speaks volumes to to their knowledge, their skills, and their abilities. Yep, I, I would agree. And, you know, when we look to bring individuals on to the managed services team, you know, we, we do look at their skill sets and we do look at what, you know, what they know technology-wise, but we also do look at kind of the personality because I, I do believe, you know, you can teach the technology skills, you can't teach the interpersonal skills, so. That's sort of how we approach hiring also because, for example, you take a typical college student who's, you know, who's been to university for four or five years and learned all the technical skills, we usually tell them in the interview, we're looking for somebody who's going to fit culturally and chemically with our team and be able to work as a good team member because you know frankly we can with enough exposure we can train anybody to do about anything so we're we really look for uh, good communicators and people with good customer skills yeah those soft skills are very important so i i commend you guys for doing that because the technological skills like you said chad you can teach them you can show them the way but those soft skills the way to treat people the way to show empathy that's very important so I, I want to shift gears here a little bit to a, a different topic. So we got a question here about what should you be doing or not doing about email viruses, scams, and spam, both as a person using an email system and as an IT leader responsible for the email system of a company? Uh, that's a that's a great question. That seems to be a lot of discussion in today and more so in, in this pandemic situation we're in or the, the COVID environment that's been established is that, you know, phishing, email attacks, uh, hacking have been on the rise. And it's, it's just to be a little bit more prevalent because everybody's now in a virtual environment. Companies have kind of had to open themselves up a little bit more in order for folks to get in via virtual instead of being kind of contained in their environment and in their own network. So, you know, we've seen a rise of, you know, hey, I, is this is this a spam email? Oh, wait a minute, they, they stole my email. Typical things. And we've really kind of combated that, you know, I mean, you really can't stop everyone from getting in. But what we, you know, what we strive to do is, is build a tighter wall, make it more difficult. We have a number of tools that we have in place that, that we offer to our clients. We have email filtering, so it's going to filter out any of the, you know, blacklisted domains, IP, you know, bad, poor IPs, you know, IPs or domains specific to countries, the typical virus stuff. And we also allow them to like report, hey, I think this is spam. They can, they can report that out. We take a look at it and say, yes, it is, or no, it's not. Or if it's something that we feel that isn't spam, we work with them to kind of make sure that those, you know, possibly their clients are uh, get whitelisted instead of blacklisted so that they're able to communicate as well. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say on, on the user level, there's, and these are posted all over the internet, but a good healthy dose of common sense and sort of one of the things I tell people is don't trust anyone. <laughs> and if it's 
If it seems suspicious, it probably is. For example, we see a lot of instances where people are getting email from people they know or people in their mailing list. Uh, I got one yesterday that said it was an urgent favor and do I have an account with the Amazon company and could I help them? And I was like, well, first of all, this is a guy I barely know. Second of all, does anybody really call it the Amazon company? So you sort of have to almost treat everything with a, little, a bit of skepticism, and that especially goes for things with email attachments or links. As a rule of thumb, I never click a link that's uh, coming out of the blue, and we, we tell people, verify with the person who sent it. Send them a personal text message or, uh, you know, uh, whatever communication they're using. We use uh, Slack and Microsoft Teams. Contact that person and say, did you send this email? Did you send this attachment? Treat everything with a huge dose of skepticism is the number one rule. Because as Jim said, as we get more savvy in trying to block and screen these things, the hackers and the fishers are also getting more savvy and they adapt to what we do and then we adapt to what they do. So it's sort of this vicious cycle, but self-protection and uh, a little bit of uh, common sense will help go a long way. And we've had to train users on that because people are already intimidated a little bit in the tech space and, um, we have to make them realize what you read is not necessarily true. Yeah, and, and through that too, education is the big key of, you know, what to look for in these emails. Uh, you know, like the great story as we see the ones that come in that look perfect. That looks like it's got the signature line in there and everything. And then all of a sudden you look at the email address and it's a Gmail account. It's like, well, that's not, that's the kind of stuff you have to look for. But also, you know, a lot of not just you know, being common sense, but putting some practices in place and in, uh, which is, you know, changing your passwords every 30, 45, 60 days, adding multi-factor authentication and really, you know, from, a, from uh, our side of things on the managed services side, we provide quarterly audits where we look at what their environment looks like, where possible vulnerabilities. We run a number of scans within there to see, hey, you know, are you caught up on your patches? Are you, you know, we kind of do a dark web scan too to see if maybe there's something out there and then work to remediate that to continue to build that wall. The other side of that from an email perspective is, you know, like I said, we've, we've got some tools in place that do some filtering to kind of prevent those from coming in as well as even going out. So if we see that in some instances that somebody's kind of gotten in, stole someone's address and is starting to send emails for them that they can't see, because we've seen that happen a number of times, that we can help shut that down quickly and, and you know quarantine those off and, and prevent those from going out and, and then work with our clients to kind of like, okay, hey, you know, here's what you need to do to remediate that and, and what you need to communicate out to your clients as to what's happened. But on the other side, you know, you look at the antivirus, malware, uh, ransomware, et cetera. We have a tool in place that is, is really an endpoint protection, which is that next generation antivirus that allows us to detect any kind of malware, viruses, or ransomware on a machine, whether that be a desktop server or anywhere within the network. And once that's captured, we can there isolate and quarantine that device from the network and, and from the domain, go in, do our, do our research, do our forensics, determine what the problem is, remove that, clean it, and then bring it back online. And that can usually happen within minutes to hours, depending on the severity and, and what the virus is and, and how, how deep it's been penetrated. Uh, and that helps prevent a lot of that. A lot of companies today have antivirus and they feel like that's good enough. Sometimes it's not. Um, in, in the 
hackers today and any kind of infiltration that is happening in an environment usually isn't, boom, we got hacked and it happened today. They usually have been in there anywhere from weeks to months, just kind of searching and trying to see if you could find them. And if you don't, that's when they hit. And even though they say that they're not, you know, you, you pay your ransomware, da, 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 they're still in there. It's, it's not unusual to hear of clients that have been hit two, three, four times within, you know, a few months of like, it's the same person, you know, so education is the best thing. And just, you know, trying to find the right tools and, and continue to build a stronger perimeter and, and make it difficult uh, are, are really the keys to it, because it's not a matter of if it's usually it's, you know, how long what when is going to be so. Right. And especially, again, with the, the pandemic going on, with virtually all users remote, you can't simply yell over the cube wall, hey, Susie, did you send me this email? So people are more isolated and, oh, I got an email from, you know, one of my coworkers. What, what's this attachment? So common sense, customer savvy, uh, training is a huge piece of it when it comes to especially people being isolated here and being exposed to those kind of things. I think it's very interesting to hear the two of you talk about all the, basically the new adjustments and the newer technology that we have available to fight off all of these attacks to, to call it for what they are. And like Chad and Jim, you guys were mentioning earlier, I mean, things as simple as a simple email that you get on your inbox. And I, I know that I working in HR, I've had my fair share of emails come in with the names of the individuals that we have working at Mosher, where they look like, oh yeah, hey, can I get you to do this for me and, and give me my bank account information? And I mean, Jim and I always, I always share them with Jim because I think, you know, they look so genuine, right? They look so yeah. real. But then if I click that reply button or any of the links that are associated with the email, then it's all over. Yeah, and some of them are pretty easy to spot. Like I said, the one I got about the Amazon company account yesterday, that was pretty easy, you know, <laughs> uh, things like no punctuation or improper punctuation right. or bad use of grammar. <laughs> but some of them are actually pretty sad. Yeah, and, and to that too is that, Anya, you mentioned that, you know, clicking that link and so forth. Now that they've got your email address, you know, they've, they've kind of got your approach to things. So they have your signature and they'll send that out to your customers. And now that they're in there, they can create rules and so forth that, that you never know that somebody's sending or receiving anything from that particular email address. We, we've seen situations where that's happened and it hits a lot of more of like the controllers and finance departments where... It didn't happen to us, but it's heard it at a conference about a client that, you know, they got hit pretty hard that it hit their finance department, hit three accounts payable accountants that had been, they had been sending emails out to their clients saying, hey, by the way, we're not receiving checks anymore. Everything's got to be done through ACH. Here's the bank account you send it to. This was going on for like three or four months. And the company's like, hey, we've got about 15 clients that have been late on their payments. And they're like, we've been sending them, we've been sending them. And then all of a sudden they realized they've been sending it to the wrong bank account. Wow. Yeah. You know, and these weren't, you know, two, $3,000 invoices. These were a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's uh, really corporate identity theft. Yes. And that also brings up the other thing, you know, it's not just uh, money. Larger corporations are get, you know, the, a lot of hackers are getting in and stealing intellectual capital, getting into their right. file servers and stealing you know, design specs or you know various patents and so forth that they can get in there. 
Yeah, that brings us, that's a nice segue to my next question, which has to do with uh, data breaches. So that's something that any IT manager should be aware of. We've been living in a world where these can be pretty common, but there are ways in which they could be mitigated and managed. First of all, how can someone breach an organization? A lot of it's really just kind of stealing user information. So having, you know, I'll use Chad as an example. I figure out Chad's email address. I hack his password. And then I realized his password is the same for everything. It's not so much the individual user, it's a lot of the service accounts that a lot of internal IT and sysadmins use, you know, like admin at company.com. And then they have the simple password of password at. Uh, so, you know, maintaining that, that's how they get in. Being able to identify and find those simple usernames and the simple passwords, you know, we stress to our clients, never use something simple, complex, at a minimum eight characters, uh, capitals, numbers, special characters included, up to 14. And in some instances, we like to have them auto-generated. We would force multi-factor authentication. Everything we do now is multi-factor authentication. And that includes not just internally at Mosher, everything we do with our customers. When we establish a username and password, we want a way to be able to validate that and, and no shared accounts. And, and like Jim said earlier, Sometimes, or most times, when a company's been hacked, they may not be aware of it for weeks and months, potentially. So that's where something like our security audits come in, because we can find those earmarks and those those uh, forensic clues that show there's a probability that you know this account or this server's been hacked and, and take remedial efforts to stop it before it uh, really gets out of hand. And also, too, with, with you know our monitoring tools we're looking at you know who's trying to access what you know and it's it's all based on privileges who has the right privileges to get to this environment who has the right privileges to get to the database and if we're seeing that you know debbie the secretary is trying to log into your corporate data warehouse or your reporting tool or your you know your finance system and she doesn't have access to it then it usually triggers a red flag to say okay, what's going on? So we're kind of tracking back to like, hey, Debbie, you need to change your password or we need to do something to figure out, you know, in some instances it may be a mistake too. She went to the, she thought she had access to it, but you know, we always kind of look air to the side of caution on that too, so. A real simple user end preventative measure is by administrators forcing password changes every 45 or 90 days or whatever the policy may be because if the passwords never change and somebody's got your password, then You're you know they're going to get in. But if if you force a password rotation and keep a history log so they can't just change it back and forth to something they've used in the past, that a lot of this is a pain for the user, but it's an unfortunate necessity in our world today. So you know, safety overrides comfort in this case. And to that point too, is is part of our services that we provide, we do quarterly audits on the environment and then report those incidents back to our clients to say, hey, here's where we see particular vulnerabilities. Here's where we're seeing where areas that need to be fixed and patched more. You know, we're not going in and looking at individuals' passwords because you know we just nobody should have access to that. But we are looking at, you know, hey, we need to make sure that we're changing these on a regular basis, as well as looking at where the holes may be, staying on top of any, you know, patches and updates because Microsoft and, and a lot of the different providers out there in, are pushing out code to kind of help prevent some of that and, and putting some of those security patches in place to make it more difficult for hackers to get in. 
and so forth. So we, you know, that's the key is staying on top of that. You know, there's the big story was, I think it was last year when Anthem and a few of the larger corporations all got hacked. And a lot of that was because they weren't up to date on their patches. And, you know, we work with our clients to, we're on a regular cycle. So. Yeah, it's sort of like when the, the engine warning light comes on in your car and you think, eh, I'll get to it next week or next month. Well, something bad's going to happen. So being proactive, having a, a normal patching <laughs> schedule. And then, as Jim said, sometimes the, the vendors, Microsoft or whoever, will come out with an emergency security patch because they've discovered some kind of exploit. So on the back end, that's where we have to be up on our game and make sure that we're scheduling and we're in constant communication with our customers to tell them what's going on with those. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting. So we talked about how to get in, right? What can you suggest for individual IT managers out there? How to educate themselves on this topic and keep educating themselves just to be, you know, on the forefront of this so that they don't have this happen to them. Um, there, there's a lot of different things. Education is the key. You know, you know, there's a number of different um, sites and uh, newsletters that come out, you know, related to security. The biggest suggestion I can make is to at least have an annual security audit, bring in a third party. We were a managed service provider and, you know, we try to do as much as we can as it relates to security, but we're not a SOC or a security operations center or even a security provider. So, you know, our level of expertise only goes so far. We're not doing any kind of uh, penetration testing. We're mostly just looking at what's established today and continuing to try to make it better. Today's IT manager has to be savvy and really you have to, I think, joining uh, user groups or manager groups in uh, their local communities, user groups uh, for certain vendors, and you really have to stay on top of that. Back in the day, everybody used to get info week, and that was you know published every week, and you could keep track of trends. Well, unfortunately, today things move in in a time frame of minutes, not weekly. So today's IT manager really has to stay on top of what's going on in the industry and the world as a whole, in in order to uh, make sure that they're doing the best course of action. And, and Chad brought a great point up there in that you know not just you as a company looking at what you're doing security-wise, look at your vendors. What are, what are their security policies? Because we've kind of seen it just recently with the big one with the solar winds breach in that that came in and they got everywhere. You know, they're in the Department of Treasury, they're in the Pentagon, Microsoft got hit through this. So these large players and understand what their security policy is, because if they have access to your systems, then that may be something that will get attacked eventually. So, you know, even using like Salesforce, I mean, these SaaS systems are great. However, we, you know, they're, they're just as vulnerable as everyone else. If you have any kind of internet facing application service or server, you are constantly being probed. And, and I think everybody needs to understand that it's not just, Hey, they targeted us and something bad happened. No, if, if you have uh, internet facing software, hardware, or whatever, you are getting probed on a daily basis. And what they're looking for is that exploit, that, that sort of hole in the wall. So uh, I think it's it's good for even for users to understand, even on a personal basis, your, your home PC is probably getting probed every day and people are looking for a way in. The other, some of that too, is just to make sure that you have tools in place to encrypt local PCs, providing tools to, uh, you know, be able to wipe a machine quickly. 
So having those solutions in place and those tools in place really does help too in the, in the long run. So kind of just to extrapolate that a little bit more, boy, this program has been filled with nice segues. What, (laughs) in the event of an organization falling to victim to a breach, how best could they manage that situation? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Honesty is the best thing to do that you really need to ensure that they are communicating with their clients, that there has been a breach, the level of it, they may not know at the time, but to, to, to be open and not try to hide it is the key. One of the first things they should do is really shut everything down and look to remove, try to figure out when remove where it's at. Um, isolate. Well, yeah. Isolate where you know, in quarantine off where those, where those pieces are at. It, it is unfortunate that there's a hiccup in that. And you almost have to look at it as kind of like disaster recovery that if I get hit, what's my contingency plan for being back up and running? Us personally have not, as a managed service provider and even as Mosier, have been pretty lucky that we have not had a major catastrophe breach with any of our clients. Most of what we've run into is a lot of the email, oh, they stole my email, I've been fished, and those are remediated rather quickly. But the bigger ones where there's a full-blown uh, ransomware or, or a full breach that, you know, that we can see that there's people in there, we personally haven't run into. But usually our policy is, is that you know, we have to treat this like disaster recovery. Contingency planning and disaster recovery planning is a must, and even small companies need to be aware and need to have some kind of plan. It's almost like the COVID outbreak. We've all heard of or we've all been exposed at one time or another, and you take certain steps, right? You, You isolate, you go get tested, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you actually develop COVID, well, now you've got a different set of circumstances and you have to put your plan in place. What does that look like? So contingency and disaster planning are are huge in, in when we're talking about this topic. And that's a whole nother uh, webcast we could probably do. <laughs> yeah. This, this, yeah, the disaster recovery and planning and execution and testing on that is, 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 is something we could spend hours talking about that. But the other side of that too, in, in not only into the disaster recovery is, is having good backups because a lot of times you're going to need to, you know, to restore from those backups and at what level you want, because that, that would be the key too, is that, you know, you, you, you've got to restore these systems from somewhere where you're going to do that. And are those backups compromised? So, you know, a lot of that stuff needs to be addressed and, and it should be looked at on, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, Chad had mentioned, we look at disaster recovery and our backups, backups more so on a, on a monthly basis, even though they're being done daily, we're going through and double checking everything and confirming that everything's good and reporting that back to our clients. But on the, the disaster recovery, we're looking at that on a quarterly, we're going back and saying, hey, we need to review what we're going to do, whether that would be a form of testing. Uh, which we pick a weekend and say, hey, we're going to take everything down and spin it back up. Or we do kind of a tabletop exercise to walk through what are some of the, you know, everybody, get everybody in a room and says, this happens. What do we do? I do this. Okay, check, move on. Uh, just yeah. so we know the process so we're prepared that if this does happen, you know, we're available. So. And again, that's referring, again, this is all systemically related. That's where a good security and system audit can come into play too. Having an outside 
third party look at your policies because that's really what the auditor is looking at. I mean, yes, they find obvious holes, but a lot of audits will look at your policies. What are your backup policies? What are your contingency plans? What are your disaster recovery? Disaster really doesn't mean getting hit by a tornado at your data center. Yeah, that can happen. Disaster means your servers got ransomware on it and what are we going to do about it? How's that affect our customers? How's that affect our employees? Interesting. Um, yeah, you talk about you guys come from preparation. It's sort of like like what Chad was saying. You prepare for a disaster, you go through the disaster, and then you mitigate in the end. So do an after-action report, after-action review, after a breach happens. So that's it's very interesting that we take the same approach for a disaster, you know, a natural disaster or something like that, into the IT world. So thank you guys for that explanation. And another on on that on hell doing what we'll call drills too. We see a lot of clients, they'll have a yearly disaster drill basically where they cut over to their backup servers, they they find their backups, they they, they walk through the entire process of this, you know, as, a, as live as you can get exercise to make sure their policies actually work. Would you recommend once a year, maybe twice a year for them to do some of these audits or these preparation, you know, risk assessments? Yes. And actually, we do that as part of our service is that we come in and do quarterly risk assessments. We, we've got a number of, like I said, vulnerability scans we do and, and ports that we run to say, hey, here's the things at risk and here's some of the things that need to be fixed. Because we, we kind of work with that with our clients to kind of roadmap that out over the uh, of the course of our, our contract and our engagements and to say, hey, you know, we see that this system is near end of life, which is creating, which could create some risk and vulnerability. What is our plan to fix that? You know, in, in looking at where we're at with access control and, and so forth, we look at those individual pieces of it and say, okay, here's what we want to do to remediate this and when we want to get it done, uh, as well as prioritize that. Because, you know, there's some things that are big needs that get to need to get fixed and others are less important but we want to keep them out there. Uh, you know, as Chad pointed out, you know, that's some of the stuff that an auditor is probably going to find. And more than likely, they'll come in and say, you know, do you know about this? And we'll say, yes, we've got that on our roadmap. It's scheduled to happen in, you know, Q2 or Q3. You know, they'll be, okay, that's good. But, you know, maybe we want to move that forward. So we're working with them to kind of prioritize those, those changes and those that, that need to happen within that environment. Yeah, auditors are, are important to have. I, I I guess I should know I'm married to one. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, thanks. Thank you guys for that explanation about what people should do prior, during, and after a breach. I think those thoughts uh, should be present for any IT manager. But let's let's end this episode on something a little bit of a light question that I have here for you guys. So please be honest. What's the most challenging help center ticket you've ever received? <laughs> Well, that one that one's near and dear to my heart as, as Moser's service desk manager. Uh, the most frustrating and hard to accomplish tickets are the ones that come in without good knowledge and good data behind them. For example, it's actually happened where we'll get a, an occasional ticket saying, I need help. Well, what's that look like? Does, can your car not start? Have you had a breach? Or what, do, what does I need help mean? So uh, for me, and I think for my team, it's very frustrating not having the knowledge and the data they need to go in and, and prosecute a solution. So that, and that's the first thing we have to do. And that really, that that gives your, your life cycle of your, your issue, it, it really extends it because now we have to do a lot more investigation. Whereas if I've got screenshots, 
user account names, uh, what server we're talking about, it, things like that. That really cuts out a lot of steps uh, for the forensic uh, investigation that we have to do. So the by and far the largest frustrating tickets we get are the ones that just have no backing data and we have no idea what the customer <laughs> is talking about. Or the, 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 the other famous one that I love of those is, can you call me please? Yeah, <laughs> you know, we work a lot of our tickets based on severity. You know, what is what is the is it an urgent need? You know, and through that, we don't know if it is urgent or it's not. So we'll look at that and go, okay, do I need to call this person now or do I need to? Can I wait because there's an outage over here? So you know, it's it's a delicate game of balancing what's important versus what's considered a nuisance. Right. Um, and. To users, everything's important, and we understand that. But when you say, hey, can you call me? Sometimes, well, most times, actually, that turns out to be, I had a question about this or that, or how should my password look? And you're like, okay, well, we've had to pull a resource off to uh, you know, work on a different customer issue for just sort of a, a question, which is fine. We can answer customer questions, but if we understand, and like Jim said, if we can prioritize and direct our assets to where they need to go, uh, that helps the customer, that helps us, that helps everybody. Interesting. Well, I, I know that I've fallen victim to the I need help ticket. Not necessarily with Bozier yet, but in the past, I know I have. So I really appreciate the honesty on that one. Um, so folks, Jim, chat, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I think this topic, like, like Jim was saying earlier, I think this is something that we could probably sit down and talk for hours. Not that we can't, but we want to limit the, the listening experience right now. So Jim, Chad, thank you very much once again. We really appreciate you guys coming on today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome.